Welcome, folks, to Sunday School Time, and we're so glad that you are uh, with us this morning. And we are doing our study through First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles. We've entitled our series uh, The Days of the King, meaning the days of King David. And we're up to Lesson 23 today. And we're just progressing right along through Second Samuel. We're not looking at First Chronicles right now because we're in a period of David's life that the chronicler does not record. He kind of omits this segment of David's life for whatever reason. And if you think about it, this segment of David's life is pretty tragic, and it's even going to get more tragic today. Last week we saw that there was some family tragedy with regards to his oldest son, Amnon, raping his sister, Tamar, Tamar's brother, Absalom, murdering his brother, Amnon, then fleeing, then being brought back to Jerusalem, not seeing the king's face for two years. And then when we ended the lesson last week, we saw that the king, finally after Joab's insistence, has Absalom come Absalom bows himself down, the text will tell you, and David will kiss him. And it seems like, okay, everything's going to be okay now. Well, until you come to chapter 15. And actually, for the next few chapters, we're going to see that there is a conspiracy and further tragedy in David's family. So why don't we begin today, again, I'm going to just mention to you that we're not going to read through the passage because there's a lot of material here, but I do want to go through and give you an overview of what you're going to find. I always encourage you to read it on your own, but I would encourage you to just follow along as we go through the text. So when we look at chapter 15, I just want to kind of title it Absalom and the Kingdom. Because what you're going to see is, is Absalom is not just satisfied with being back in Jerusalem. He wants the kingdom now. For whatever reason, he wants to take it from his dad. So it begins, first of all, in chapter 15, kind of telling you that Absalom is going to become really the favorite popular guy in Israel. We already know that the Israelites... They really like Absalom because he's perfect, he looks great, and he has this long hair, heavy hair, and he's just like the epitome of beauty for a man. He's total handsomeness. So now we get to the point where he's actually going to play on that with the people. So what you begin to see, first of all, is that the text tells you that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses as well as 50 men running before him. So the implication of the text is is that as he's going about in Jerusalem, he's on a chariot, he's being drawn by these magnificent horses, and there are 50 men who are running before him. So that kind of gives you the picture of somebody who has wealth, who has power, and that's the implication here that you're seeing in the text. Now, it also says he does something that's pretty unusual, but you're going to see why he does that. He sat near the city gate and settled lawsuits that were coming for the king's judgment. Now, you say, what in the world? Why would he go to the city gate? Well, I'll be honest with you. It's a little bit different in our culture 
when you talk about the city limits, you don't usually find anything there. You've got to go into the center of a city or the center of a county and find the courthouse, which is where lawsuits are settled. Most business and most transactions and most things were settled at the city gate. At the city gate would be the elders, would be representatives from the king, judges who were appointed, and they would then render judgment concerning everyday life things, concerning issues that people would have, they would render judgment. The most severe cases would then appear before the king himself. Now, Absalom's playing on that. And so what he does is he, he doesn't, he's not there with the elders and with those leaders. He's positioned himself nearby. And so the text says that whenever somebody would come by, and it's very obvious that they're coming by to settle a lawsuit or to settle whatever it is that they are dealing with, then he would introduce himself or he would call to that one and he would settle their issue right there. So he would render justice. Maybe he would say, don't bother the king's officials, they're too busy, whatever. He's, he would settle the issue for them. Then he would kind of loudly proclaim, the text would say, he, Absalom then proclaimed that he should be made a judge to bring justice to Israel. Oh, if I were only made a judge, and, and how much more righteous would the decisions be here in Israel? And, and that's what he did. Now, he's doing it for a reason, and it worked. In these things, Absalom stole the hearts of Israel from David. He basically won over the people by prancing around town on a chariot with 50 men. Boy, he's really spectacular. We never see the king, but we sure do see Absalom. Oh, he helped me with my lawsuit. He's very wise. He's thinking about, I would have never been able to see the king. And in doing that, he becomes the man of the people. And he has won the hearts of the people right under David's nose. David doesn't even know that any of this is going on. Well, the text continues on then. And it says that after four years, okay, so after living in Jerusalem four years, he requested that he be allowed to go to Hebron. Now, for some of you who are using the New King James Bible or the King James Bible, your text is going to say after 40 years. And that is a textual variant. A lot of the other texts that are from that period, especially in other languages, would all say four years. And so most modern translations will say four years because we're not talking about 40 years. So after living in Jerusalem four years, he requested that he be allowed to go to Hebron. So he goes to his dad, hey dad, I need to go to Hebron. He told David that he wanted to fulfill a vow he made when he was in Gersher. So he wants to go to fulfill a vow. Now, what you're going to see is it's obvious that he's telling his dad the truth. All right, because you remember, why was he in Gersher? He was in Gersher because he had just killed his older brother Amnon. He fled 
for fear that he himself would now be killed in retribution, which is what the law would have required, for the slaying of his brother. So he's up in Gersher, and while he's there, it's very evident that he made a plan. And the plan is beginning to happen now. So after four years, so let's get the timeline, okay? Let's get the timeline again. So you got, you got the murder, excuse me, the rape of Tamar. Two years later, the murder of Amnon. Three years later, he comes back to Jerusalem. David brings him back. Joab is sent to bring him back. He doesn't see his dad's face for another two years. So then two years beyond that, so that's four years total, he decides, hey, Dad, can you send me back? I've got to fulfill a vow. And it's very evident from what we're going to see in the text that probably what he decided is he wanted the kingdom and that he wanted to replace his dad. Folks, that's some serious family dysfunction going on here. Okay? Family dysfunction going on here. So he says, Dad, I want to go fulfill a vow. And of course his dad says yes. And, and the reason why is, number one, his dad's not suspecting anything. And number two, the fulfillment of vows is very important in the Jewish culture. So whenever someone made a vow, and typically when you make a vow, you make a vow before God. And so there is significance to that. And you would want someone to fulfill their vow. So that's what he does. He goes to Hebron. Now, from Hebron, Absalom sent spies throughout Israel with special orders to proclaim him king. And the special orders were kind of like this. Whenever you hear the horn or the trumpet, then proclaim Absalom is king. So whenever you hear the sound, the alarm, then you proclaim throughout all of Israel, from 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 Gath and Gad until down to to uh, to down to the ends of Judah, you proclaim that Absalom is king. So this is what he set up. Here's another thing he did. With Absalom, two hundred men went to Hebron but they did not know anything about the conspiracy. So he says, Dad, I want to go to Hebron. He goes to Hebron. He takes with him 200 men, an entourage of 200 people, and they have no clue what's going on. They have no idea at all about this conspiracy that he wants to be king. None at all. So they go. One of the ones who goes is a very close friend of David. David's trusted counselor, Ahithophel, joined Absalom in the conspiracy. This was a trusted counselor. And we're going to know a little bit more about the kind of counsel he gave here as we go a little bit further on in the text. But there is, I think, an interesting side note. The text doesn't bring this out, but it is in Jewish tradition and there are some scholars who believe this, that Ahithophel had a son, and it mentions what his name is, and it is believed that this son had a daughter. 
And the name of the daughter, are you ready for this? Bathsheba. So that would make Ahithophel Bathsheba's grandfather. And so it can be very possible, it is speculated, that he had an offense against David for the murder of his grandson-in-law, Uriah, and the taking of Bathsheba. And that's all speculation. There's nothing in the text that says that, but I think it just adds an interesting twist as to why this guy, who is David's trusted friend, would join the conspiracy and turn on him. Something really interesting to think about, isn't it? Okay, so then it tells you, the text tells you then that the numbers of people with Absalom increased continually. So as the conspiracy grew, it grew bigger each day. More and more people were joining the conspiracy. More and more people were agreeing to Absalom being king and overthrowing David. So the conspiracy begins to grow. Well, as you progress further along in chapter 15, of course, finally, news gets to David. So when David heard the news, he called his servants to flee from Absalom. All right, so here's what he does. I think, I think what you see David doing is pretty wise and perceptive. He decides there's going to be a confrontation, there's going to be a battle, it's time to get out of Jerusalem. And so he warns his servants, however many they are, and there were a few, we need to get out of here, get your stuff, Absalom's coming, you don't want to be here, you don't know what's going to happen to you, because these are his trusted servants. In departing, here's why he wanted to flee the city. This, is, this is, shows you the heart and character of David. In departing, they would spare the city from being attacked by Absalom. In fact, the text tells you they would spare the city from being put to the sword. Because typically when you have a conspiracy like this and you have an army of people coming to you, those inside the city would defend the city and eventually they would lose and eventually it would be put to the sword and many people would die. David doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want the innocent to be killed. And so they're going to flee the city. They're not going to allow the city to be besieged and come to battle. So David left with his whole household, but left ten concubines to care for the palace. Now again, remember what a concubine is. It's a wife, but it's a lesser wife. It's not a wife that has full privileges of being a legitimate wife. It's a legitimacy of a certain type, but, you know, like your sons would not be heirs to the throne. It's kind of a weird system. We don't have anything like that in our culture, but they did in their culture. And David decides he's going to leave 10 of them behind to care for the palace. Okay? He's heading out. Everybody's going with him. All of his wives, all of his children, everybody and his uncle is going with him. They're going to leave Jerusalem. Now, on the outskirts of town, before they would cross over, they say. Cross over is what the text says. And he's talking about the Kidron in the Kidron Valley there. 
cross over the creek or the river or whatever. On the outskirts of town, he stopped as all his servants passed by. So David is leading, and then at this point, he stops and lets all of them pass by. And what follows in the text is his interaction with different people who are passing by, okay? Different people who are passing by. The text also tells you that with his household, those who went with David included 600 men who were with David in Gath. All right, so there are 600 men, and as you get a little bit further in the text, you're going to realize these are not 600 Israelites. These are 600 Philistine mercenaries who were with David in Gath and who went with David and have been serving David ever since. So these are 600 warriors. That's amazing, isn't it? Now, the first one that David interacts with is a fellow by the name of Ty. David told Atai, the Philistine mercenary commander, to stay since he was in exile. David basically says to him, you don't need to go with me, you're a foreigner, you don't have anything to fear, you just stay. He's giving him an out. Now Atai gives really an amazing answer. And that's right before David also tells him this. David pointed out that he had just recently arrived and should he now wander. So David's saying, okay, you just came to me. Why should you wander with me fleeing? Okay, so here's Atai's answer. It's amazing. Atai chose to stay with David no matter where he would go in life or death. All right, so here, listen to this. This is a guy who is committed to the king. But this isn't his king. He's a Philistine. But he loves David so much that he is saying that he will go wherever David goes and follow him, whether it be for life or lead to death. That, my friends, is loyalty. That, my friends, is commitment. That's what the men were like who followed David. He continues on, so David allowed Atai and his men with their families to join him. So those 600 men and their families, they cross over to Gedron. All right, so what happens next is, is that the priests come and the Levites. Okay, So Zadok and all the Levites with the ark came as the people crossed over. So as the people were crossing over, here comes Zedek, the priest, and Abathar, and with them are the Levites, and they're bearing the Ark of the Covenant. And they're wanting to go with David as well. All right? They're wanting to go with the king. David told Zedek to carry the Ark back into the city. You bring it back into the city. You put it where it belongs. Okay? That's what he's saying here. Take it back. You need to put it where it belongs. He stated that if he had found favor in the Lord's eyes, he would see it again. Oh, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? David's putting this all in God's hands. He's saying, if God shows me favor, then I will see it again in Jerusalem. What a perspective here. We're actually going to see this perspective a little bit more as we go further along in the text. David is trusting his God. All right, but let's just remind ourselves David also knows why this is happening. 
Because he was told this by Nathan the prophet when he was confronted concerning his sin with Bathsheba. It's interesting, isn't it? So he also tells Abathar and Zadok this. He also pointed out that their sons could bring him news to inform him. So basically, I want you to stay. You serve in the tabernacle. You serve before the ark. And as you hear news, you have your sons go and tell me the news. You inform me. So it then says that David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping with his head covered. It also says that his, he went up in bare feet. And as he did that, the other people did that as well. I think it was amazing when I read this, as I was preparing this lesson, I was amazed that here we are, we're seeing David go up the Mount of Olives. So already, here's a mention of the Mount of Olives. The next time, I think that most of us, when we consider the Mount of Olives, we consider it because Jesus spent a lot of time there on the Mount of Olives and taught. Here's David going up that same very mountain, weeping with his head covered. Someone informed David that Ohithophel was among the conspirators with Absalom. So at some point there, as they're going up the Mount of Olives, he's weeping. Someone, it doesn't say who it is, informs David, hey, that your buddy, your friend Ohithophel, he's part of this conspiracy. He is aiding Absalom. And so I want you to notice what David does. And I think this is an example to you and I. Look at what he does. David prayed that the Lord would turn the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that, I mean, you're getting pretty specific here when you're praying like that, right? I mean, you think about it. I mean, he's saying, God, this is the counselor. That's why Absalom has him. To seek advice, and he's going to give good advice. But you, God, turn his counsel to foolishness. See, this isn't just one of those wipe him out prayers, God. God, you do something specific here. I think that's interesting. It kind of teaches us a lesson about prayer here, doesn't it? Now, when David reached the top of the mountain to worship, his friend Hushai approached him. Now Hushai, it says, when he approached, his garments were torn as well, which is, of course, the, a, a symbol of mourning because the king is doing that and ashes are on his head. Hushai had ashes on his head. Okay? Because of his age, David did not want him to go with him. Basically, he says, don't go with me, you'll be a burden. You say, well, that's pretty rough to say. Well, no, it's being realistic. He's telling him, don't come with me. All right, don't come with me. Rather, this is what David is smart now. Listen, listen to what David does. Rather, David wanted Hushai to render service to Absalom and defeat Ahithophel's counsel. So he's saying, Hushai, here, look, I know you want to go with me, but I think it would be better... If you just stayed in the city and you offered your service to Absalom and then you defeat whatever counsel Ahithophel gives. 
Isn't that interesting? So he's kind of like a spy, okay? Kind of like a spy. You know, I was doing some research. I found this interesting. This is a little side note that has nothing to do with it, but I think it's interesting. I was doing some research on, a, on Hushi and wanting to know what does it mean, the archite. That's what it says in the text. Hushi, the archite. Now, where? what does that mean, the archite? Well, that's a, a little town in a district in Israel. That's why he's called the archite. Well, as I was doing that research, trying to figure that out, I saw that there was an article, are you ready for this, on the CIA's website concerning Hushi. And I thought, well, of course, curiosity would cause you to, like, why, why would the CIA have an article about this guy from the Bible? Well, it was an article about him being a spy and how he functioned as a spy. Isn't that interesting? That's amazing here because that's basically what David is doing with him. You spy out what's going on. In fact, that's what he tells him. Hushi was then to relay any news from the palace to Zadok and Abathar. So you get the news to the priests and the priests will get their sons to get it to me. You confound that council from Ohithophel and you get me any news of what's going on. Isn't that um, interesting? So then the text tells you, then Hushi went into the city as Absalom came into Jerusalem. So Hushi returns into the city and at that time, Absalom with his men and his conspirators and his army shows up. Well, that brings us to the end of chapter 15. So now we are going to get into chapter 16. And you can basically divide chapter 16 into two parts. The first part would be David's humiliation. And we're going to see that in verses 1 to 14. The second part then would be verses 15 to 23. And that's where we're going to see uh, the whole issue of Absalom and his... Uh, counselors, those who give him counsel. All right? So let's talk about it. So first of all, his humiliation. So as David continued past the mountain, that's the Mount of Olives, he was met by Ziba with donkeys loaded with supply. Now, do you remember who Ziba is? Ziba was the servant of King Saul who told uh, David about the heir of Jonathan that he might show kindness because of Jonathan and the covenant he had. And then it was, of course, Meshavashef that was the heir. And then basically the king pronounced that Ziba was to then be a servant and his family and his serv and his family servants were to then serve Meshavashef and his son. And Meshavashef was to eat at the king's table every day. So this is the Ziba. So as he's going out, there's Ziba. He meets him with some donkeys, and he meets him with some supplies. Of course, the king asked where Meshivasheth was, and Ziba stated that he remained in Jerusalem. Now, I'll be honest with you. When you read this, you kind of wonder what's going on here. Okay, because you remember, Meshivasheth is lame in his feet. So it's not like he can just get up and walk around and go anywhere he wants to. All right? 
So David's wondering, okay, where's Meshivasheth? Why are you here, Ziba? Why are you doing this? Okay, so Ziba, of course, is telling him that uh, he's bringing the supplies for the king as he goes on his journey. And uh, David says, okay, where's Meshivasheth? Where, where's he? Well, Ziba stated that Meshivasheth felt that the kingdom of his father was coming to him now. Now, if you think about it, that really doesn't make any sense. Because the guy who's claiming the kingdom is a son of David, and he's got an army. Meshivasheth is a dude that's lame. He doesn't have an army. And so he's thinking he's going to remain behind and that somehow the kingdom's going to come to him. Uh, it doesn't really make any sense, but it kind of makes for a good conspiracy theory that Ziba is presenting to the king. I'm here to help you, king, but Meshivasheft is back saying the kingdom is coming to me now. The son of Saul. All right, so here's what David does. Ziba then gave all that belonged to Meshivasheft to Ziba. Basically, he said to him, okay, you take everything that belongs to him. It's all yours now. It's all yours. Now, this isn't the end of the story, but that's all we're going to talk about today, okay? We'll see the rest of the story in maybe the next lesson or the lesson after, okay? Let's continue on. There is another guy that he comes along, and this is a little bit further on as they make their journey. They, they meet a guy by the name of Shammai. Shammai, from the house of Saul, came cursing and throwing stones at David and his entourage. So as they're going along, there's this guy named Shammai who is from the house of Saul. So he's from Saul's family. And he comes along and he starts cursing at the king and throwing stones. Now, what do you mean he's cursing, George? Well, the text tells you. He shouted that David was a bloodthirsty rogue and that God was taking vengeance for Saul. So obviously there's some pent-up anger with this guy. And here's David, he's fleeing, and so this guy is coming along and like pouring salt on the wound. You're just a bloodthirsty rogue. This is because of what you did to Saul. God's having vengeance on you. And this is what he's yelling. Okay? He stated that David was caught in his own evil and that he was a bloodthirsty man. All right. Whoa. All right, listen to me. This is a really a good lesson about critics. Critics sometimes, when they bring and criticize you, sometimes there's an element of truth in what they're saying. So the first part with Shammai is, is he's saying, you're a bloodthirsty rogue and this is God taking vengeance on you because of Saul. You and I know this has nothing to do with Saul. This has nothing to do with what happened to Saul or David becoming king. We know that. However, there is an element of truth with this second statement that he's making. He is saying to David, David, you are caught in your own evil. Whoa. 
That's true, isn't it? This is all happening because of his what? Sin with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed with the sword of Ammon. And that he was a bloodthirsty man. I think that's a little brutal there. But again, remember, we're dealing with somebody who doesn't like David, who's critical from the house of Saul, and he's saying these pretty harsh things. Well, remember Abashi? Abashi is the brother of... <laughs> he's one of David's commanders, but he's the brother of uh, Joab. Well, he's, take, he's hearing this, and he's taking offense. And so Abashi wanted permission to cut off Shammai's head for cursing the king. <laughs> hey, king, let me... And he calls him, let me kill this cursed dog. Okay, so he's... He's like, let me, let me take off his head for even daring to say this kind of stuff. Okay? Let me take off his head. I mean, now you and I would be like, yeah, let, let me shut this guy up. Because this is what Abashi's doing. And you and I would be like, well, is he doing something wrong here? But notice how David responds. First of all, he says, he, he refers to the sons of Zariah plaguing him again. Whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? Well, here's what David is saying. David acknowledges that the Lord had Shammai curse him, and so he must be left alone. Okay, so in all of those harsh things that Shammai was saying about David, David obviously caught something and he realized, God is having this man curse me. So we will leave him alone. Isn't that interesting? Remember, I already told you about you are experiencing your own evil here. I mean, that's obvious that that's because of David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Remember? And because of what was pronounced by Nathan the prophet. So David is recognizing that and says, you know, leave him alone. So that brings us then to verse 15, and we're introduced to David's counselors now. Okay, so let's deal with the first one. And it's Hushai. Remember, Hushai was sent back, and he was supposed to be a spy. So Hushai came to Absalom and proclaimed, Long live the king! In fact, he says it twice. Long live the king! Now, Absalom knows who Hushai is. So first of all, this is not like somebody he doesn't know. If you're in the court of the king, if you're raising the king, you know this is one of David's old friends. Because the guy's old, this is an old friend of David, he knows who he is. So Absalom questioned Hushai's loyalty to his father and why he did not go with him. All right, that, that would be pretty predictable. I mean, if you know that this is your dad's good friend, first of all, aren't you loyal to my dad and why didn't you go with him? I mean, that's a logical question, right? Logical question. Well, here's what Hushai said. Hushai stated that who the Lord and Israel chooses, he will serve. So he's basically saying, look, I'm going to serve the one that the Lord chooses and that the nation chooses, and that's you, Absalom. That's you. 
And here's what else. He goes a little bit further and he says, just as he served in his father's presence, he will now serve in the presence of the son. It's basically saying, you know, just as I served your dad and was faithful in my service to him, I will be now faithful to his son. Wow, it's pretty impressive, isn't it? Pretty impressive. And obviously Absalom buys it. He buys it and we're going to see how much he buys it next week. Well, I told you we're going to be introduced to his counselors. Well, that brings us to Ahithophel. So Absalom asked Ahithophel to give advice concerning what they should do next. All right, we're here now. We're here. What should we do next? That's what he's asking here, isn't it? What's the next plan here? What's the next thing that we should do? Okay. So, Ohithophel told Absalom to have sex with the ten concubines David left to care for the palace. Whoa. What? For you and I, we're like, what kind of advice is that? Well, that's pretty shrewd advice. You'll see why. He's telling him the ten concubines that are left that care for the palace, you have sex with them, and that's going to make a statement. Okay? That's going to make a statement. He stated that this act would strengthen Absalom's hand as all Israel would see it. Basically, this act of taking his son, his dad's wives, even though they're lesser wives, and having sex with them would make him so abhorrent to David. It would basically solidify, I'm my own man. I am not going to be making it right with my dad later. I'm going to do something that will so anger him. There is no way we'll ever reconcile. There is basically a break between me and David, my dad. And this would strengthen Absalom's hand. This was the advice that he gave. It's pretty shrewd advice. So guess what they did? They set up a tent. So as they set up a tent on the top of the palace, Absalom went in to the concubines. So they set up this tent on top of the palace. Now remember, I told you, the roofs are flat. So they set up a tent, and so on the top of the roof of the palace, which would be probably at the highest point in Jerusalem, people can look up there and they can see him engaging in sexual relations, more like rape, with these ten concubines, and all Israel would see it. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment. Think back to chapter 12 and the confrontation of Nathan and David. And when God pronounced his judgment upon David and that the sword would never leave his house, he said something else that was very interesting. If you need to, go back and look. He says, I will give your wives to your neighbor. And he will do to them in public what you did in secret. Folks, that was prophetic. And here we are in chapter 16, and that is being fulfilled now, isn't it? Only the neighbor isn't a neighbor. It's his son. 
And that, my friends, is what's so appalling about it. But Nathan told him that this would happen. This would happen because of his sin. See, David knows exactly why all of this is happening. Now, how could somebody like Ahithophel do this? How can he, why would they listen to him? Well, it says in the text, it's very clear, that Ahithophel's advice was seen as one who received counsel directly from God when he served both David and when he served both Absalom. People viewed his advice as being from the oracles of God, the text will say, as being directly from God. Whatever God says directly, that is the advice of Ahithophel. And that's how highly in esteem he was held. And here he is, he's giving counsel to Absalom. And now you understand why David would pray, God, confuse the counsel of Ahithophel? Well, that brings us to the end of chapter 16. And really doesn't bring us to the end of the story, though, is it? Because now we have David, who's fleeing, and we have Absalom, who's in control. And so something's got to come to a head now, right? And so next week, when we get into Lesson 24, we're going to talk about being on the run. What do you mean being on the run? David on the run. And we're going to see where this story takes us, and it's going to have a tragic ending.